Good job, kids. That's exciting. I was just talking to Marvin Frank, and I found out you kids were doing a song that they plan on doing next week. But no, they weren't. <laughs> They'll leave it to you guys. You guys did a great job. Let's all stand up, greet those around us with the love of Christ as the kids make their way down to junior church. Let's greet one another. That is wonderful. On a chilly fall morning, the leaves are are starting to blow around the yards and pile up along the along the hedgerows. The uh, weather is getting chilly, and as we mentioned, we were blessed uh, yesterday after men's breakfast to be able to pop into Calgary, and on our way to visit our son and have a wonderful meal cooked by his uh, mother-in-law from from uh, China. We were able to pick up my younger brother, Mark, and his wife, Elaine, at the airport. They came from warm and muggy Texas and get off, and by the time we got to South Calgary, we had a good 10 inches of snow. And so, uh, and I said, you know, that's, that's what we call, what do we call 10 inches of wet snow in October? Uh, we call it sweater weather, you know, and, uh, and uh, it was exciting for them to see that. Uh, but I said, there was no snow in Froshu when I left, and there was none when we got back. So, so uh, it's, a, it's a nice fall morning here today. 
Friends, as you, uh, if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to open it to Revelation chapter 2 as we continue the series of seven messages, actually eight, because we started on the Isle of Patmos. But as we look at Jesus' letter to the seven churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation, and uh, as we talked about uh, the last few weeks, we began in the, the great city of Paul's and later the Apostle John's ministry center in Ephesus as the gospel fanned out like spokes of a wheel all around Asia Minor, the Roman province there in modern-day Turkey. And uh, one of the things that precipitates this message, as you'll be reminded of, is uh, in May I was able to go with a group of uh, largely seminary students from uh, Taylor Seminary up in Edmonton. And uh, we just had a wonderful time visiting each one of the ancient sites of these seven churches. Many of them, like today's, is uh, in the middle of a modern city. The city was never uninhabited. It continued to be. As we saw last week, uh, Smyrna, the ancient Greek city, continuously inhabited all the way back to the days of the Amazon warriors. Uh, Its name changed only to Izmir in 1922. So uh, it's fascinating to see these cities, many of them, uh, the history of those towns, two or 3,000 years or more. And we think of uh, things being old in North America. It's just a different scale altogether. Today, though, we were in Ephesus, a church that was so strong with the word, but uh, in their busyness for the gospel, their, their love for Jesus had begun to burn low. And Jesus called them back to remember their first love. And then when we traveled up the coast to that great port city of Smyrna, and we saw that this was a church that was being persecuted. We saw the marketplace, the ancient marketplace in Smyrna, that Christians were largely uh, denied entrance into because many, over time, the gates of the marketplaces, including the political agora, the political marketplace, uh, they would burn a pinch of incense, showing they were good Romans by... uh, worshiping Caesar as a god. And the Christians refusing to do this, they suffered because of it, financially, economically, but physically. Uh, Smyrna was a center of, they celebrated important events uh, as good, a good city of the Roman Empire with gladiator events. And Christians were often used, Christians and other criminals were used in the blood sports of that city. So we saw Smyrna, the, the persecuted church. Well, they've been tough situations, but the Christians have been holding strong. And it's encouraging to hear Jesus write to them. He had no commendate or no accusation, only commendation for Smyrna. But unfortunately, that takes us to Pergamum, the first of the churches that we see the Christians wavering, compromising, becoming friends of this sinful world. We're reminded that this world There is a spiritual world beyond what we can see, that we are in enemy territory. The Apostle Paul, it's not on the screen, but remember the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, the first couple verses, the Apostle Paul reflecting on the Ephesian Christians before they were Christians. He reminds them that once we were all dead in our sins, as we lived in this sinful world, as we took our marching orders from the prince and the power the kingdom of the air, referring to Satan, in whom the spirit, this malevolent evil spirit dwelt as we followed him in this broken world. We were lost spiritually and we were helpless in the face 
of unclean spirits like the prince in the power of the air, Satan. Well, we are going to see that up close and personal when it comes to Pergamum. First Peter, we're reminded of that spiritual struggle that's going on all around us. Peter writes, as we were reminded recently as we went through the letter of First Peter, Peter tells the Christians, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are enduring the same kind of suffering. This could have been written to the Christians that Jesus wrote to. It's the same circumstances. We're in Satan's kingdom. The kingdom of God is in God's people, and it's growing. The Lord's expanding the borders, but we are still in this present age, this darkened world, this kingdom apart from God. There's that tension. I've called today's message Pergamum in enemy territory. And when we think of enemy territory, we think of pictures like this, probably written, I think that's probably lifted from uh, the artwork around... uh, probably Paradise Lost by John Milton. In Paradise Lost, after Satan falls, he sets up his kingdom with all of his demonic minions and he builds a palace called Pandemonium. If you know a little bit of the, the language, you know pan means everything, like pantheist. Pandemonium, the abode of all demons. But that's not what we're talking about. Last week we saw places like that, the lake of fire, those are in God's sovereignty. And that's where the lost including death and Hades and the old enemy Satan will one day be thrown into. We see that in the book of Revelation. But the enemy territory we're talking about is all around us. Those strongholds today, they look very different, don't they? They're well-coiffed and dressed people in the media. That's enemy territory. They're the universities, hotbeds of radical ideologies and godless philosophies. Unfortunately, it can be education systems. If the wrong people are in positions of authority, it can be health systems. It can be governmental systems. It can be your neighbors. You know something's wrong. Something's going wrong in that family. The people, the kids, they have bruises. The wife has a black eye. The husband drinks too much. You don't know what's going on, but you know it can't be good. These can all be strongholds of this present darkness. So today, I think the letter to the church in Pergamum is perfectly applicable to God's people living in this world today. The letter begins with Jesus addressing the church, and we always see him referring to himself with an aspect of that glorious vision of the risen Lord to John on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation chapter 1. We begin looking at Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, the verse. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Do you remember that vision? It says at the end of the description of Jesus that a sharp, double-edged sword proceeded from his mouth. So this is the symbol of the true and powerful Word of God. Now the sword, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of Jesus is important. And there's a reason 
Jesus uses this description of himself. These descriptions feed right into what the people are facing, and it encourages them that God's word is true, that it's not void or dead, that it's powerful and alive today, and that's so important to them. When we begin each week reflecting on the trip I took back in May, let's go to Pergamum, but let's go to it today. Pergamum today. Now you see that it's a beautiful sprawling city with red tile roofs among the hills. It's probably uh, old reckoning about 40 miles north of Smyrna. It's not right on the Aegean Sea. It's in from the coast. In fact, if you go straight to the coast, there's the ancient port of Troas, which is built on the ancient city of Troy, where the Trojan War was fought. Well, this is about uh, 14 to 16 miles inland from there, and it's a beautiful city set on hills in fertile valleys. Like there's a, there's a dam nearby, a beautiful large reservoir, and they even have, standing on the Acropolis of Pergamum, we could see they were doing fish farming down in that great water reservoir. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. Turkish people today, they travel far and wide to go to Pergamum. The city today, though, the name is a form of the ancient name, but it, today it's Bergama. They go to Bergama from all over Turkey, and if they have a friend going to Bergama, they say, don't forget to pick it up, because Bergama is famous for cheese, <laughs> for the most delicious cheese of all kinds. The true Bergaman cheese, though, is a dry, salty goat cheese. It is powerful. In fact, our friend Karem, who was our guide there, we had a little, like a little mini bus. It was so nice, you know, and Karem says, you guys, there's a treat in store. So we stopped at the, the famous Bergama cheese store and he goes in and he brought it out and gave everyone a big piece. Well, very few finished their big piece. Let me tell you that. And so people started to tuck those strong, smelly, salty goat cheese they pockets and wrap it up in napkins and put them in the seat back in front of them and then we got off the bus and of course the bus heats up while we're up wandering through the ruins we got back on and you'd think you were in a hockey locker room that bus <laughs> it smelled so bad that wasn't part of the sermon that's just extra color i'm sorry but bergama is a cheese town today but not only that but if you get a glimpse that big big hill in the middle there that was the upper city of the ancient city of pergamum pergamum let's look the acropolis the next slide let's look at these slides well where it's mentioned there it is north of smyrna and inland from the sea that's pergamum now pergamum as you look at the next slide we'll show you the acropolis that high city today which is just full full of ruins. That's uh, the Acropolis from a distance. And you see some buildings and you see something that looks like a, a Greek or Roman theater carved in the side. And that's just what it is. The Acropolis stands a thousand feet over the city. If you go to Athens, that Acropolis made of limestone stands about 300 feet, has a few temples. It pales in comparison to the Acropolis of Pergamum. Pergamum was known as the greatest city of Asia, of Asia Minor. Uh, Ephesus was great. Uh, they had the Temple of Artemis. Remember how proud Smyrna was that they won the award Neochorus as the most loyal city to the Roman emperor three times, Pergamum and Ephesus only twice, their great rivals. But Pergamum was the seat of power. You see, uh, Pergamum, it was, always, it, was, it, it was basically founded and flourished as a city during the age of Alexander. 
Alexander the Great changed the world and Hellenized it, made it a Greek world in about the year 300 BC before Christ. But he died at a young age, just about the same age as Jesus, just about 33 years old. And after Alexander died of a fever, his, his empire was split among four of his generals. Now, two major generals, Ptolemy, he founded the Ptolemaic dynasty of pharaohs, including Cleopatra. He took Egypt. Uh, Seleucus took Syria, the Holy Land, and all the way around into Turkey. But they couldn't really hold it, the Seleucids. These are the people that the Maccabees revolted against in the intertestamental time in Israel. But the Seleucids, one of Seleucus's lieutenants, he founded his own little client kingdom, the Pergamum kingdom. And his descendants ruled for 150 years, and it became powerful. It became very powerful. The capital was Pergamum, and all the cities around, like Ephesus and Smyrna, were under the Pergamum Empire. And the Pergamene Empire was called the Adelid Empire because it's funny, every other king, there was only two names for their kings, Adelus, like the first one, and Eumenides, the second. They'd go Adelus, the first, Eumenides, the first, Adelus, the second, Eumenides, the second, Eumenides, the third, and finally the last king, Adelus, the third. Adelus, more like addled, because this man, he was called, uh, what was his name? His name was Adelus Philometer. Now, Philomater, mater, mother, Philo, love. Adelus, the mom lover, because his mom meant the world to him. He was a little like Elvis Presley that way. Mom was everything to him. Never married, never had any, any descendants to inherit the kingdom. He loved his mom. And when his mom died, he was inconsolable and eventually took his own life. But before he did, because he had no kids, and he saw the power of Rome rising from the west, they were already right on his borders, and he wanted to save his kingdom, shed blood. In his will, his last will and testament, he gave his entire kingdom to Rome. So overnight, Pergamum became the capital of a Roman province, the province of Asia Minor. So that's why it had all of the power and the temples. It was a religious and cultural center. Now that's the Acropolis. Let's get closer to the Acropolis. The next picture is amazing. This is a recreation of the Pergamene Acropolis by a German archaeologists. In the foreground is the greatest uh, building of Pergamum. That is the center of the worship of the chief god Zeus. That's the altar of Zeus. Behind it, there's a smaller temple of Athena. That columned building was all important because it was the library of Pergamum. Pergamum had the second largest repository of human wisdom in the world. The biggest library was in Alexandria. The second largest was in Pergamum. Third largest was down the road in Ephesus. They had over 200,000 scrolls stored in this library. And knowledge, as it is today, was power. So libraries were very important. In fact, Pergamum gives its name to a word. They used papyrus from Egypt. But when they got on the bad side of the Egyptians, they cut off papyrus shipments because Pergamum's library was getting bigger than theirs. So they wouldn't let them have papyrus anymore. What did the Pergamon, Pergamines do? They began to make their 
writing paper out of animal skin. Parchment. They invented parchment. In fact, parchment comes from the word pergamon. Pergama carta is the word parchment. They gave their name to it, and their library continued to grow. And behind that is a temple, a beautiful temple at the very top. That's the temple of the divine god Caesar. The first emperor worship of Caesar as a god, the first temple was built in Pergamum. They were the seed of that. You see how there were no unreligious people in those days. If you belong to a trade guild, each trade guild had their own god. You worship your own god. Soldiers in the Roman Empire, they all worship Mithra. Everybody had their own god. Greeks with a Roman name or the old Egyptian gods were around as well. As we mentioned last week, the Jews were exempt from this because they had special legal status in the Roman Empire. They didn't have to burn incense to Caesar. And uh, once the Christians were identified as separate from the Jews, that's when the persecution really began. Let's look at some other pictures of the Acropolis. There is a computer recreation of the Acropolis. You see below the library, it's white there, but those are seats. That's the, Roman, that's the Greek theater and later the Roman theater, and there's 10,000 seats there. If you want to know how many people live in one of those cities, multiply the number of seats in their theater by 10. 25,000 seats in Ephesus, big city, 250,000. 10,000 seats in the Pergamum Theater. So about 100,000 people dwelt in this. Below that is the Temple of Dionysus and the great uh, public walkway there. Let's go now to a modern drone picture. There's the, there's the Acropolis today. Incredible place. Uh, tourists today, they take a cable car or a bus to the top of the Acropolis. In 2011, my son Mike and I were down in a uh, bed and breakfast down in Bergama, the bottom of the hill, we didn't know there was a cable car. So we walked all morning, hours and hours up there. We got to the top of the Acropolis, sunburned and tired. And if you know my son, when his blood sugar gets low, he's not pleasant to be with. I always take uh, granola breaks. My wife sends granola bars and I set him down, make him eat this, and then off we go. We got to the top. We're going to be all alone. No cars have passed us. So sweating, sunburned, tired, we get to the top. It's full of people chubby tourists looking cool we didn't know there was a cable car it was on the wrong side we came up from the wrong direction we missed it completely we got the real feel for how tall that place was and how big it was but you wander through those ruins of the ancient world and it is incredible Look at the theater as we close our little visit to Pergamum. There's the theater there. That theater is the steepest theater in the ancient world, 10,000 seats, and uh, it is incredible. It doesn't look like much from there, but when you stand at the top and look down with the whole valley in front of you, if you're prone to vertigo, don't do it. You want to sit down in one of the low seats. And it's interesting, in all those theaters, Jewish people went to the theater and they always had a special, almost kosher section for them. Every theater, they are down in the lower section on the far right. That's their section. Good seats. They, they were well respected in the communities. Continuing with Jesus' letter to the church that lived in this powerful religious city, enemy territory, Jesus always begins with his commendation. He commends them. And in this case, he commends them as faithful. They were faithful witnesses. 
And boy, they needed to be a witness for the gospel in this this hodgepodge, crossroads of philosophies, uh, ancient library wisdom, enormous religions, including the emperor worship. They had to be faithful witnesses. Jesus continues in his commendation of the church in verse 13. He says, I know where you live. Pergamum was famous. Among Christians, it was infamous. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Isn't that incredible? This is one of the most mysterious and powerful portions of these letters. Pergamum, the city where Satan lives, where Satan has his throne. We're told that they have remained faithful, that they have preached the gospel, remained true to the message, even when persecution came. And you can imagine with all of these religions uh, how it could easily come upon the Christians. There is an ancient church icon of St. Antipas. Antipas who gave his life as the first martyr and martyr is the Greek word for witness, the first martyr in Pergamum. Now you see, it looks like he's riding a, a, a ox or a bull, and that's because about 400, 500 years before Christ in Sicily, a man from Athens at the behest of the dictator of that island invented a new form of torture and death, and that was called the bronze bull. You can see them in museums. And inside this enormous bull, the person through a hatch was placed and then a fire was built under the bull. And as the person screamed and burned, the sounds would come out the open mouth of the bull and eventually smoke from the burning body would come from the nostrils. And the church, the early church historians all agree that Antipas ended his life in the bronze bull in Pergamum. And Jesus said he was faithful. And they didn't waver even back when Antipas died in a persecution. They were a faithful bunch. But the question arises, Satan lives there, his throne? What is Jesus communicating? I think the people at that time all knew what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about this great religious center of worship, something that today we don't fully understand, but the Christians they understood it completely. That was the world they lived in. Let's look at some of the things that over the years, different commentators have suggested might be the reference to Satan's throne. What was Jesus talking about? What's that the symbol of Satan's throne on earth? One might be emperor worship. There's the remains of the great temple of Caesar. It began under Augustus and reached its height under Hadrian and Trajan. There's even statues of different Roman emperors and so forth that were used in their worship. Emperor worship was important. It really kept the Christians out of the mainstream because we refuse to say Caesar is Lord. Caesar's our master. Because Christians could just say those easy words, but we refuse because we only have one master, and he's Jesus. So was it emperor worship? 
Or was it the worship of Asclepius? The Asclepian, it's all the way across town from the Acropolis, but my son and I, we walked to it. And you walk through a gypsy village past an army base. In fact, it took us a couple days to get to the Asclepian ruins uh, during this trip in May because the gypsy village was in an uproar. Because the gypsy people, the Roma people, they're in charge of all garbage collection. You see them in their wagons with all their rubbish and recycling in the back. And it is, it is sort of like the organized crime unions down in the States who go after each other. We couldn't get in because the gypsy garbage collectors were fighting one another over territory. And uh, it was a pretty rough day. But then peace reigned. They made an agreement. And we were able to get in. Asclepius was the god of healing. The doctors today still use his staff the staff with the serpents coiling up it. That's the symbol of Asclepius. The third largest Asclepion, our ancient hospital, the worship of Asclepius, was in Pergamum. The most famous physician from the Greco-Roman world was not, uh, was not uh, it, was, it was Galen. Uh, we've talked about him uh, in regard to a great plague that he witnessed. Uh, but Galen was like the doc, the father of more modern medicine. And he came from Pergamum. It was his hometown. In the early days, people confused Christians with the cult of Asclepius because both of them were healing religions. They offered health, spiritual, physical health to people. Even in the apostolic times, great miracles of healing. So Asclepion, that was a great competitor with early Christianity. There was the Asclepius with his uh, serpent staff Next, we show the uh, Pergamum Asclepian as it looks today. The next slide shows uh, that's part, that's some interesting things. One of the things they did, you saw that big round building, the rotunda? That was where you were diagnosed. It was a dormitory. You would go underground in a pitch black room, and they would give you uh, uh, sort of uh, psychotropic herbs and, and salves, and then you would sleep. They'd knock you out with drugs. And then in the middle of the night, the priest would wake you up with his, with his tablet and ask you what you dreamed about. What you dreamed about was your diagnosis. They would interpret it and know what the problem was. And when you would leave that darkened uh, place full of fumes and drugs, there was a long tunnel with water running through it. And it symbolized rebirth. You dreamed, you received your diagnosis, and you can still walk through that tunnel today. I did it with my son 10 years ago, but in May, it was full of rabid, voracious mosquitoes. So we didn't walk very far into that tunnel. But that's the tunnel of rebirth. It's hard to see, but that column there, it has the symbol of Asclepian, entwined serpents around a wheel. Serpents were always, always his symbol. And we know who else is symbolized as a serpent all the way back to the book of Genesis. That's Satan. Could the Asclepian be Satan's throne? Well, the last picture, it was more or less like a spa as well. There were theaters and mud baths and music and poetry because they wanted to heal not only the body, but the soul and put the mind at ease. It was really an enormous ancient retreat center. And many people, it seems, were actually helped there. Well, if not the Asclepian, there's one of the most eerie buildings I've ever been in. Today, we call it the Red Basilica. Look at this building. It is the largest brick building built by the Romans. If you go to Italy, you see brick. Romans built with brick. 
and faced it with marble. This enormous Roman brick building, it's called the Red Basilica, but it's an ancient temple to the Egyptian gods. This was also the center of worship of the Egyptian gods. Could this, could this be Satan's throne? All of them possibly. We can't be dogmatic, but I think it's most likely, it's most likely Zeus, the altar of Zeus. Now this is the altar of Zeus today. Look at that. All you see is an ancient platform with marble steps leading up, rubble and trees. That's because archaeologists, German archaeologists, took it all away. But this was the most important altar in Greco-Roman religion, Zeus Olympia. This was his throne, his altar. It was seen as the altar was his throne, just as the Ark of the Covenant was seen as the throne of God. The altar of Zeus was seen as his throne. We'd say, well, what about that? You know, those are just statues, those ancient gods, aren't they? Those, those, that's just old superstition. That's not what the Christians thought. In fact, what did they believe? The Roman gods and their names were the names of powerful demonic entities. And who was the king of demons? Who was the king of all of those false gods? Zeus. The Romans called him Jupiter. He was the king of all demons, and that was his throne. So this is very likely what Jesus meant when he said where Satan has his throne, where Satan lives. The altar today, here's a reconstruction, an artistic reconstruction. It was enormous. It was powerful. And today it's all been taken apart. You can visit it in Berlin. This is the Museum of Pergamum. Look at it. See those front steps in the inner court? This next picture shows the front steps today. They've been reconstructed. That's the Pergamum altar, the great altar of their high God, the greatest of demons, Zeus. But it's in Berlin. Fortunately, it survived the bombings in World War II. It's being actually restored right now. You can still walk up those ancient steps. And as you walk through the portico, you go into the inner courtyard. And the last picture is the inner courtyard where the sacrifice to Zeus was made very very likely where satan has his throne this is where they lived i understand it was tough but we come now jesus has condemnation of the church as well an accusation he brings against them is that they in this setting began to compromise their faith no longer were they the faithful witnesses willing to give their lives like they'd been in earlier days, the days of his dear witness Antipas. But now, little get along or go along to get along, you know, it's tough enough life. You know, we can still be Jesus worshipers in our hearts, but what's it hurt? A little pinch of incense there, belong to a little union with its own God there. We begin to compromise. And this is the first of these churches, these seven churches, where we see the poison of compromise, mixing the world with Christianity, syncretism. Jesus says there are compromisers among them. Not all of them, but there's compromisers. We read about that in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Jesus says, nevertheless, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak 
to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we heard about them earlier back in the, back in the Ephesian letter, but only in Pergamum does it become clear what we're talking about. Jesus says of these Nicolaitans that they are like the people of the wilderness wanderings when Balaam and Balak tried to stop them. Remember Balaam, he was a true prophet of God, but for money he tried to prostitute his gift and pronounce curses on the people of Israel as they passed by at the behest of Balak the king. He tried and tried and tried, but each time he had to speak the word of God and instead of a curse, he pronounced blessing. He couldn't do it. And knowing that, he gave some good advice, well, bad advice, but effective advice to Balak. He says, don't fight it. Befriend them. If you can't beat them, join them. And by joining them, you will corrupt them. You will compromise who they are as followers of Yahweh. And that's what we read. That's what Jesus is referring to. Jesus hasn't forgotten the Old Testament. It's true and alive to him today. Remember what happens. Just reference it very quickly. In Numbers chapter 25, speaking of that, when that compromise took place and how it's mirrored in Pergamum, it says of that time, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor and the Lord's anger burned against them. You see that? This isn't the meat sacrifice to idols that the Apostle Paul uh, assures the Corinthians that it wouldn't be sinful unless their conscience condemns them. That was in the marketplace. That was after the temple use of it was done and to proceeds to support the temple. The extra meat went down to the Agora, the marketplace. The Jews had no problem with it. They say, oh yeah, that's this is this is kosher meat, you know, it's not pork, you know, it'd be beef or lamb. But they said, you know, those we don't believe in those gods. But the Gentile Christians coming out of idol worship, they say, no, that was that was sacrificed in honor of this de- demon. I don't want any part of that. And Paul's saying it's just food. What Jesus is talking about, though, is the meat in the temple being used, as we saw with Balaam and the people in Moab, being used in worship at these feasts in the temple in honor of the God. And the immorality probably re- reflects the temple prostitution of, the, of that time. We know it came from Balaam's advice because Numbers 31, reflecting back, says of the women involved, They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and were the means of turning the Israelites away from the Lord in what happened at Peor so that a plague struck the Lord's people. 24,000 children of Israel died as God's anger burned against them because of their sin with the Baal of Peor. This is what's happening in Pergamum. They're starting to join the trade unions that have their own gods and have their little communion time with their gods, a little love feast with meat sacrificed to idols and the immorality that goes along with it. Sure, on Sunday we'll gather as Christians, but the rest of the week you can't tell us 
from the rest of the world around us. We just want to fit in. What does the Apostle James, Jesus' brother, write in James chapter 4? Jesus says, you adulterous, or James says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now we want to be friends with our friends and neighbor and family who don't yet know Christ because we love them, because God loves them. But what this is talking about is adopting their ways and worldview, compromising, giving up who we are in Christ, not standing up any longer for what the Word of God clearly portrays. And that brings us back to the Word of God, the sharp two-edged sword proceeding from the mouth of Christ at the beginning of the letter. This is the correction called for. The correction Jesus offers is repentance, a return, turning back to the Word of God. Turn back to the Word, that sharp sword of God. Jesus says in Revelation 2, verse 16, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus says, I will bring correction to the body of Christ. I will discipline the children I love. And the tool I use, the sword, will be the Word of God. It'll be the truth of God. The Word of God applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit is powerful. It is effective. It breaks our hearts, our sinful hearts, and causes us to repent of our sin and turn back to Christ. When you are up to something you know God does not want you to be involved in, your Bible becomes kryptonite. It gathers dust. You don't do your daily devotions. You don't consume your daily bread because you know deep down that the Word of God will stop you. It will cut you down and turn your heart back to the God who loves you. It's effective and alive. Hebrews chapter 4, the familiar passage. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That is powerful. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He loves his church. He will not let them continue to go off stray and go astray. But as always, Jesus, he corrects like a loving parent. And is any of you who had a mom and dad who loved you enough to discipline you and give you a licking when you needed it, I pray that you had that loving parent who followed up the discipline by taking you in their arms and comforting you, restoring you. It was almost worth getting a spanking to have that time where you're wrapped in their parents' arms and they know that you've been corrected. And they only did it because they loved you. And you understood that that pain, that brief pain, was somehow connected to that love and the heart behind it. And Jesus always follows up his correction with a promise and with encouragement. And we finish with that. 
Jesus promise. It's hard to understand in this case, but I think it's connected to the feast of God. They had been tempted in going astray to the feasts of the false gods. That's what they're corrected for. And Jesus now offers better food, the love feast, the marriage supper, the promise, welcome to God's feast. Look at that strange promise the Lord makes to the church in that amazing city of Pergamum. Jesus says in verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. That is odd. Well, Jesus is referring to the the bread of God, the bread from heaven, the manna that he gave them in the desert, pure, perfect, rich food. A jar of unspoiled manna remained in the Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God. Jesus is offering communion with God at his feast. The bread of life is Jesus. And what about the white stone? Well, in that day, a white stone, believe it or not, when a judge rendered a verdict, guilty was rendered as a black stone. Innocent was a white stone. And through Christ, we have been declared innocent because he took our punishment and gave us a new heart. Why a name written on it? White stones in that culture also served as invitations. When you were invited, when you were invited to a special banquet, you would often receive a white stone with your name on it. And Jesus says, I have a special name that I've given just for you. What a precious promise. I believe, as Revelation always hearkens to different parts of itself, the book of Revelation gives us a glimpse of the ultimate expression of that fellowship with God. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, we're reminded of the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is in all of our future. Verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give, give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And then the angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the words, these are the true words of God. Just as they did in Pergamum, for those of us who overcome, our invitation has been issued. Live our lives as reflected in that passage, that we may be clothed in white in those acts of love of God's people. Be faithful witnesses. Be true witnesses. Don't be compromisers. Don't be friends of the world in areas that we cannot. Jesus alone, not Caesar, not Zeus, not Satan, not Asclepian, not the old Egyptian gods. Jesus is our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that though that letter Jesus wrote so long ago to a people so far away, Lord, it still applies to us today. We live in this world, this broken, sinful world where Satan has his throne. And Lord, those spiritual strongholds take different forms today. 
but still we must stand true to the word of God and remain faithful witnesses to that truth which is called into question everywhere around us. Lord, when we do so, you have great blessing for us. An invitation to the banquet. Communion with you. Rich spiritual food. For all of these, Lord, we give you thanks. Teach us as you taught your people in Pergamum. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.